0: Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver, where we look at current events through the lens of integral theory. And integral theory posits that human consciousness and culture are evolving. And um, if you want to know more about all that, you can go to the Theory tab on my website, dailyevolver.com, and you'll also see many years of podcast archives on all kinds of topics. Now there are a couple things about evolution that really apply to our present moment. One is that evolution tends to happen in spurts. It's like you go along and this accumulates and you get these tensions, and then all of a sudden a disaster happens. Generally, something tragic, something changes, shocks the system, and there is a Cambrian explosion. There's just a new thing that opens up, and uh, you know creates all kind of beauty, but through painful means. And we are experiencing that in real time here in the United States, kicked off by a tragedy. In this case, the videotaped murder of a black man at the hands, or should I say knee, of a white police officer and three other police officers holding him down. and. You know, good Lord, I don't think you can watch that and not be changed. I I was. I couldn't watch the whole thing. It's long, you know. So like I said, I think it has changed me. I think it has changed America. And I want to look at that from an integral perspective. So just using developmental theory, what this has done has been to make Us, me, and I think the American culture in general, more green. It's raised our center of gravity into, you know, what we refer to as the sensitive self, the self that wants to see what they've been blind to, uh, particularly when it comes to people who are outside, you know, in your peripheral vision, but suffering. And that's where a lot of us have been. So I'll just use my trajectory. I am a good Boulder liberal, good white Boulder liberal. I have been all my adult life. I hate racism. I feel guilt and shame over American history, over my part in growing up through a conservative uh, milieu in Western Pennsylvania. I feel terrible about the people who are being victimized to this day. I fretted about it. But now I'm fucking outraged about it. And I'm happy to be. I think it's the appropriate response to this. It's like the face of George Floyd is now front and center, not in the periphery anymore. God bless his soul and the millions of people whose souls he's touched. Hallelujah. And I think that's happened for the country, that the whole center of gravity of the culture culture is lighting up into the green territory. And that is a very good thing. And um, I'm very encouraged by some of the numbers I'm seeing where a Reuters poll yesterday that showed that only 20% of the American population opposes the protests that have followed the tragedy, 20%, 73% support him. I guess there's a few undecideds in there, but you can't see, you don't see those numbers around anything in politics, particularly after a week where, you know, we've seen violence, the headlines are America's on fire, you know, as one could predict. We have the shenanigans of Trump You know, even with that, the American people are on board with this and they know something needs to happen. And that is a move. Now, some of that will settle back down and, you know, the balloon will shrink a bit, but you can't unsee what you see. That's just that's thank God there's a ratcheting up that is a permanent acquisition. Okay, so let's take a closer look And let's start with the 20% of the people who oppose the protests. And of course, Trump would be part of that one way or the other. But I think the more interesting character is the guy who walked across Lafayette Park with him the other night to the church, and that's Attorney General Bill Barr. And Bill Barr is a fascinating example of a man who is modern in many ways, postmodern in some ways and yet has the heart of a theocrat. And he expressed this in a speech he gave at Notre Dame about a year or so ago. I talked about it on the show. And he sees the world as a titanic battle between good and evil, between God and the enemy. And in this battle, liberalism uh, is not seen as progress (laughs) as we see it in integral. It's a new stage of development, post-modernity, for heaven's sakes. No. To him, it's a regression. Well, the sexual revolution, multiculturalism, particularly religious multiculturalism, it's not progress. What he doesn't get, of course, is what's clear when you look at history, and that is the less religious a society, the more humane, the more egalitarian, the less violent. But... Nevertheless, that's, you know, he represents a vibrant 20 plus, maybe 30 percent of the population. And then there's Trump. And, you know, I don't know about Trump. I don't know whether he's a theocrat at this point or not. He's a growing entity. He certainly played one on TV the other night holding the Bible. Uh, But at his heart, Trump is at the warrior stage, the previous stage, where he's just in it for the fight itself. And, you know, I really, honestly, hate having to take Donald Trump too seriously, except that he is the president of the United States, apparently. And so we have to pay attention, especially when he talks to the police departments and says, don't be too nice. Rough them up a little bit. I'll pay your court costs. And so you have a police and military who are to some degree enthralled with this guy. Now, most police are modern, uh, many are postmodern, but the part that is in it for the mayhem, for one thing, the, the red cops, and even the traditional cops are feeling like they're in a battle. For God and country. And um, and they have been emboldened by Trump. There's no question about it. And whatever their numbers in the police and military, I think after this week, it will shrink. And more importantly, the thinking will shrink because there's been a tremendous blowback from the country. And more importantly, maybe from the professionals within the police and military against this blurring of the line, this war mode that we see in police. Now, fortunately, we've seen a counter trend here, too, with community policing, where cops live in the communities that they work in and who really do see themselves as protecting and serving the people in it. And resources moved from police and weaponry and tech to programs to help people, kids, addicts, so forth. I saw this in the New York Times a couple days ago. Headline was, Why Most Americans Support the Protests. Subhead, Never before in the history of modern polling has the country expressed such widespread agreement on racism's pervasiveness in policing and in society at large. And they start with a quote from Steve Phillips, who is a civil rights lawyer. And he says, There's definitely been a seismic shift in the country. He pointed to what might have sounded like a radical demand just a few years ago, cutting funding for police departments and redirecting it towards social services. And I think that's just going to go into steroids here now with the uh, Black Lives Matter and the protests and all of this. Here's another paragraph from the article. Lawmakers in Washington have pushed to end a program that sends military equipment to local police departments. And House Democrats have vowed to unveil a sweeping police reform bill by next week. On the campaign trail, Joseph Biden on Tuesday said that if elected president, he would immediately set up a National Police Oversight Commission. And I think that's probably right on schedule. There was an article in Vox that talked about the number of police killings in general is down over 30% in the largest cities, obviously Minneapolis not included, but also a 22% less incarceration rate. It's interesting that those two things are going hand in hand. And the police killing rate has increased slightly in the rural areas and is stable in suburban, but down big time in the big cities and this points to something that i want to give green a lot of credit for and green gets criticized for this for this idea that diversity itself is is an end in itself that it is itself a good thing and co- conservatives say prove it well here's exhibit a you can't have a multi ethnic police force you know, each officer could be ethnocentric as heck. They're not necessarily, but they could be. But if they have to work together, there's a emergent quality that arises where we just figure out how to do that. And, and that brings growth. And so we see that in the more pro- progressive police departments, and I think we're going to see it a whole lot more. Another thing I would point out is that One of the key propulsive forces here, evolutionarily, is the lower right hand quadrant or the exterior of the collective. That is technology, our systems. And first on that list are body cameras. And every cop ought to wear a body camera. And I think we're heading in that direction and we can't get there fast enough. We are at the stage of development, people where any act of violence that is perpetrated by the state on its citizens or even on its enemies, actually, ought to be recorded and from multiple angles. We want complete transparency. Awareness itself is curative. When people see things, they start caring. And when it starts happening, it happens fast. Again, it doesn't even have to be official policy. We see that anytime there's a scuffle or anything that happens in culture now, that everybody pulls out their camera. And I think that is obnoxious, (laughs) but I'll take it over being blind. All right. So to sum up so far, what we've seen in the last two weeks is a major turn of the whole spiral of development, where we see that people who are at red and impulses that are at red become more constrained, making the system more traditional. And traditionalists become more professional and therefore more modern. And modernists become more sensitive particularly in this case, to the unearned burdens and privileges bestowed by society. And therefore, more postmodern and progressive the system becomes. And we know as evolutionary that that trajectory continues. And there are new frontiers of culture and consciousness that want to come online. And I can see coming online to some degree. You know, that's what I do here. And so that's what I want to look at here now. And to do this, I want to turn to two leading African-American intellectuals that I've been quite taken by. One is Ibram X. Kendi, K-E-N-D-I, and the other is Thomas Sowell, S-O-W-E-L-L. And they both have great integral sensibilities, in my opinion, and they each come from the two ends of the political spectrum, Kendi on the left is the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, which I guess is flying off the shelves right now. And Thomas Sowell, coming from the right, is the author of a lot of books, but I'm going to focus on his classic Black Rednecks and White Liberals. All right. So let's look at Kendi first. He's written two big books. One is How to Be an Anti-Racist, and the other is called Stamped from the Beginning. And what Kendi does is he really brightens green. And let me explain what I'm talking about. One of the ways that we can look at development, and I think at Integral it really becomes essential, and I'm trying to do this myself, is to not see it so much as a new stage that I know includes and transcends the previous ones, but is above it in a linear progression upward, but that it is a progression outward and that it's better to look at the spiral from the top down where we can see these six stages of development, starting with archaic and tribal and warrior and traditional and modern and postmodern as the the way you might see a archery target, with a bullseye and stages glowing around it. And that integral, this is the radical nature of integral, is that all of that wants to light up. And in a way, brighter than ever. And so we want to actually continue our progress. As progressives, we want to become more progressive. And that's what Kendi's doing here. He, basically dismantles any idea that America is a colorblind society. And that is a principle of modern thinking that, you know, we had the Civil Rights Act in 1964 and discrimination is illegal and we can breathe a sigh of relief that's behind us. We elected a black president for heaven's sakes twice and that's not enough. And it's funny, we know that now. You know, we know there's a whole... That, that, that takes care of the exteriors, to use integral thinking. You know, the right-hand quadrants. But it doesn't do anything. Well, it does, but there's still a whole new project of hearts and minds and karma, actually. I saw an article from Pew Research that in 2009, which is the year Obama was elected, just 36 percent of white Americans said the country needed to do more to ensure that black people gained equal rights. Just over a third of white Americans thought that we needed to do more. And how quaint is that statistic now? Uh, Ten years old, where we see now that the number of people supporting these protests despite all of the, you know, hubbub, is 80%. So, we're seeing a new resonance around this. And this is where Kendi, you know, ha- has an integral move in, 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 in the sense that he traces the manifestation of racism basically in all four quadrants. You know, systems, laws, culture, the way people think, And comes to the inevitable but conclusion when you see something that is, you know, unfair, is that you have to work against it. So this is the idea of anti-racism, that it's not just enough to be race neutral, but you actively have to be working against racism wherever you see it arising, including, you know, of course, your communities, your nation, but your relationships and in your own mind, Now, I don't recall if Kendi actually ever used the word, but what he's talking about is karma, which is the matrix of cause and effect through time, in which we are embedded in all four quadrants, and which is intricate and dense. And so he transmits that, this excruciating karmic, Legacy of racist ideas, of colonialism, of slavery. And it's a tough story. And more than a lot of modernists can bear, probably literally, they can't take it in. But at postmodern, you can't not take it in. You want to take it in. And so Kendi helps us, God bless him, by universalizing racism. He talks about his own story and how he is working in real time to arise out of his racism against whites. And he normalizes that in a way that helps us to see that it's an aspect, excuse me, an aspect of the human condition that can be healed instead of a defect of white people. And uh, even though white people have been the clear beneficiaries So, I want to ever more deeply get that realization and to have that natural move that once I see it, I have to care and do something. And so, now, especially after these last two weeks, I I read the book a year or so ago, but after the last two weeks, I feel a move that I am just arising now as a Imperfect, but practicing anti-racist. And I think we may be on our way to becoming an anti-racist country. And I find that thrilling. So thank you, Kendi X. Ibram. Okay, so as integralists, we see that one of the ways to move beyond green is to become ever more green. And we take the uh, growing green into integral. But we also want to light up more of the spiral. So, enter Thomas Sowell, and Thomas Sowell's always been a bit of a problematic character for me. I never knew what to make of black conservatives, and he was so mean to Obama. And so, I always sort of, I don't want to say hated him, but, um, you know, he was not my guy. He was on the other side, for sure. But I have become sympathetic to the conservative argument. And regarding race, I really want to hear the conservative argument from black people. I don't want to hear it from white people. I got that one. I grew up with that one. And one of my integral friends, Greg Thomas, who you see on Integral Life, and he's on the Daily Evolver. He has done a couple uh, series with me, one on jazz that is very popular and very wonderful. And another on Albert Murray, who is his one of his intellectual heroes and who is a conservative that, you know, the basic message is, I don't want to be a victim of America. I am part of America. I am the fabric of America, too, just like you are, no more, no less. Okay, so Thomas Sowell's coming from this vibe, too. And he says that... The discrepancies between black America and white America in terms of achievement and outcomes can't be adequately explained by the legacy of slavery. And by keeping it there, we are limiting our options for solving it. And so he brings on this other side of the poll from Kendi, and it's, you know, we often talk about it in integral. If if you ask a liberal why are people poor, they'll tell you about the right-hand quadrants, the structures of oppression and racism. And if you ask a conservative, they'll talk about character and behavior and culture, the interior quadrants. And so here we have this from coming from Thomas Sowell. So on the blurb of the book, he says, this book presents eye-opening insights into the historical development of ghetto culture that is wrongly seen As unique black identity. It's very interesting. Now, what he calls ghetto culture, he also, in white people, calls redneck culture or cracker culture. And it's a culture that undervalues work, education, traditional family values, and glorifies hedonism and violence. That's the critique. There's actually an upside that I'll get to in a second, but that's the critique. And what Souls is saying is that this set of values is not unique to black people or black culture and was actually transmitted to black slaves and freed slaves by the cracker culture, redneck culture that they were embedded in. And he traces this culture back to the Highland Scots who settled so much of the South except for a group of English people who settled in Virginia and became sort of that more uh, modern lineage, if you will. But the Scots were tribal. They lived in clans and they, they had all the features of that stage and value set, which is fighting, hunting, gangs, games, gambling, bigger than life, spiritual, Gatherings, um, ruling and being, or being ruled. Uh, this is where uh, soul is, it's, it's the conservative critique of this culture is wrong in the sense that they're not lazy. You know, is it lazy to get up and go hunting or brawling? No, it's just they don't want to work in a system. They don't want to be even farmers. I mean, if you want to look at the history of the culture war, try the many thousand year culture war between the hunter gatherers and the farmers all over the world. And they disdained each other and hated each other. He, it's interesting that he points to Western Pennsylvania, which is my country, my people, that's where I come from, and the Ulster Scots who were particularly tribal. And the lineage of that. And I loved it. I mean, I remember in my high school that there were kids who just didn't get being there. It wasn't really working for them. And sometimes they were the ones who acted out and they got bad grades. And and I was a little afraid of them. Everybody was. But they were definitely living in a different world in terms of consciousness and culture. And there's one that I think of a lot, actually, and he lived about a mile from me. I grew up, he was a few years older, but we both lived at the edge of the same woods. And I would see him in the woods, and he would be hunting, and he would be trapping. And he sometimes would be at the quarry swimming with his friends, and they were all, I think he was my first crush. You know, he he looked like Brad Pitt in A River Runs Through It. (laughs) But... I also remember him getting on the bus on the way to be picked up to go to school. We rode the same school bus and he would be a different guy. He had nothing to say, and he just sort of floated through school. And I lost track of him and heard later that he died of addiction, which is plaguing people of all races of that value set all over America. Okay, so we are beginning to see how developmental theory clears up a lot of the confusions that happen when you try to account for everything in terms of either race or culture. And so this stage we're talking about, this red stage of development or this value set, is well mapped out in developmental psychology. It's referred to as the pre-conventional or egoic stage. It first comes online at age three or four. It recapitulates through your life. Some people become arrested there. But any value set is dysfunctional if it's mismatched with the world that it's in. I mean, you take me and drop me in the middle of a Mastodon hunt or in the middle of the Roman Legion marching off the Carthage. I mean, come on. I would last five minutes if I were lucky. I would beg to be hit right between the eyes quickly. Make it quick, please. So we we could see where this value set doesn't work if, (laughs) for instance, you're 73 years old and you're the president of the United States. And you're always talking shit and looking for the next score, the next score to settle. Um, You know, you have a wake of misbehavior and sex and bling and fighting and, you know, eh, he's a spiral wizard. Not another podcast for Tim. So anyway, that's that's one thing. So we sort of rethink dysfunctional. And the second thing is that when we look at black America, we see something developmentally that is really quite astonishing. I mean, this is a group of people who were wrenched, historically, if you look at the karma, not so many generations ago, they were wrenched from a tribal society in the worst possible way. And if you want to know more about that, read King Leopold's Ghost about the Belgian colonialization of the Congo and the slave trade there. Not for the weak of heart. And so that's karmically still online. So this is where I would part with Thomas Soul's thesis in that the African slaves weren't blank slates or empty vessels into which the redneck culture poured their values. They had values of their own. They had structures of consciousness of their own. And Sowell points out that slaves that were raised in the North had modern values and That's true too, because people tend to grow to the stage of the center of gravity of the culture that they're in. But it's not that one culture is poured into the other, it's that each culture grows through the spiral in their own way. And the more they're exposed to other cultures or embedded in other cultures that are at later stages, the faster they grow. And the more they stay or are confined through racism to their own enclaves or subcultures, the slower they grow. And so Black Americans and Native Americans also are two groups that are stretched across the spiral, unlike any other group. And so we see people who are vibing at integral. Exhibit A for me is always Obama, Oprah. Killer Mike, um, Spike Lee, um, and on and on and on. And then you see this, you know, great center of gravity of traditional, modern, postmodern, just the American black citizens. And a friend and I were talking about this yesterday, that the most striking images to come out of this, these demonstrations are not the red images, but of the People who were patriotic and community oriented and wanted to do good. So that's, you know, they're, they're, if you look at the karmic history of African Americans, they've grown, developed faster and more healthily than any group in human history, maybe. So Seeing things from this developmental point of view rather than so much race and culture allows us to make a distinction that's really important here. And that's the distinction between red as a culture and or red as a cultural expression and red as a set of behaviors and values. And we see, and I think alluded to this earlier, that one of the cures for red behavior, is red culture. And so this is all very good news, particularly as we look at the spiral of development from an integral perspective, and we see it from the bottom up or top down, but we see it as a series of concentric circles of growth, and we want each of them to light up. The ones that have been dimmed out, all of them to be lit up and growing. Right now, we have a culture, you know, every first tier meme, the first six stages war with each other. It's only an integral where we see that they all get to be where they are and who they are. And we see all of them within ourselves, each of us. And particularly with young people who are suffering from depression and anxiety because that core, is not lit up and energetic. Young people in tribal societies don't suffer from depression and anxiety, healthy tribal societies. They're off having adventures. They're testing themselves. They're being seen and initiated. They're having sex. They're being valued. And as I contemplate the sacred world to come, which I often talk about, it's gonna be much juicier. I mean, we have no idea how juicy humanity can be. Our subsequent generations, our progeny, are going to look back on us and say, damn, they were repressed. And black artists are doing, of course, black artists are working at every stage. And there's artists at every, of every race and culture that are working in red. But th- this is a feature. This is a brand of black culture. Of, you know, gangster rap and, you know, don't ask me. I'm an old white guy. The music all scares me. But so does heavy metal. <laughs> and so do, um, you know, these video games. And, you know, the, all of these, again, features of red culture that actually help grow and fill out the human psyche. And as an example, I have this song rattling around in my head. That a friend of mine sent to me. It's his son, who is a teenager, and he's gotten into this real old-timey Scottish-Irish folk music. And it's him doing this song called Whack Goes the Daddy. Oh, there's whiskey in the jug. You've probably heard it. I sang it as a kid in choir, and you know, I never really thought about it. But last night, I think it was because I'm working on this podcast, it occurred to me that whack goes the daddy-o. And I always thought it was this jaunty tune and it's, we all dance and do the jig or whatever. Uh, it's actually about whacking your daddy-o. <laughs> it's actually about hunting down and killing your cheating wife's lover. Then having a big slug of whiskey. And you can't get any more ghetto or redneck than that. So maybe in the sacred world to come, we will have school choir singing, Fuck the Police. I don't know, maybe. It even, you know, this vibe, this red vibe is essential. And um, we see it even in high art. I think of one of my favorite poets, Walt Whitman, who is an integral exemplar, in my opinion, and his famous poem, Song of Myself, which is essentially an enlightened ode to egocentrism. And it starts with these lines. He writes, From this moment, I ordain myself, Loosed of limits and imaginary lines, Going where I list my own master, Total and absolute. So listen to that. And if you listen carefully, what do you hear? You hear, fuck you. That's what you hear. An enlightened fuck you. And we see this actually in contemporary culture. There's this whole movement about not giving a fuck. There's books written on it. There's communities on Reddit where people talk about how many fucks did I give here and how many fucks did I give here? And basically what it is, is a shucking off of these encumbrances and proprieties. And the idea of pleasing other people and all of the ways that we're bound up in that and being fully and vividly yourself. This is, I mean, young people are eating this up, of course. The earbuds of any young teenager, probably around the world, but certainly in America, is being pumped with this vibe of earlier stages So appreciating this helps us to see this whole process, this whole movement of culture, particularly what we've seen in the last two weeks, in a new light, uh, where we can appreciate the special place that African Americans have in our culture, that black Americans have in our culture, and what they are doing for the world, actually. And how beautiful that is, and also in teasing apart red behavior from red culture, we can realize that wait a minute we're all on the same side here we're all together we yes, we want to police and rule out and contain violent impulses and the acting out, but Not the metabolizing, not the vibing, not the cultural and aesthetic expression that we need and want and will make us all more fully human as it helps fill out the human condition and the spiral of development. All right. Well, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. If you have any comments or suggestions or critiques or whatever, please write me at jeff at dailyevolver.com. or you can go to the Daily Evolver website, click the Connect tab, and there's an orange box where you can leave me a voicemail. I don't always respond. I don't even often respond anymore, but I read everything. Absolutely. If you send it, I will read it or listen to it and often respond on the future podcasts. So, again, thanks so much, everybody, for listening to The Daily Evolver, and we will see you next time.